one of the things that I see that complicates the lives of survivor victims of narcissists the most is when their family tries to step in and it's it often feels like just one more person in their life who is trying to control them and they're already dealing with that at home with their partner for parents in this situation this might sound harsh but remembering it's not about you in this moment it's not about you it's not about what information makes you feel better it's about your child everyone, I'm Denise Gorant. Welcome to Bite Your Tongue, the podcast. Thanks for joining us as we speak with experts, authors, parents, and even young adults to explore the transition from parenting our young children to building healthy relationships with our now adults. Hopefully we'll grow together, learn about ourselves, our young adults, and of course, when to bite our tongues. We are so happy you're with us. So let's get started. everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bite Your Tongue, the podcast. I'm on my own today, as you can imagine, missing Ellen very much. But before we start, I want to give a quick reminder to support our podcast. That's the only way we can keep going, guys. Just go to our website at biteyourtonguepodcast.com. Click on the large support button at the top right of the page. There's so many ways to help. Also, as we grow, it's so important to show we have lots of followers on social media please follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We'd really appreciate it. Now, a little bit of uh, backpedaling, I guess, before we really start. I want to talk about something I've been thinking about, and I kind of wanted the listener input. Many of our episodes have underscored this whole thing that the relationship with our adult children is so much more important to us than it is to them. I get that completely. They're hard at work figuring out their lives and figuring out their own relationships. But what I thought about over the weekend is how much I regret not giving my parents more attention during this phase of their life. I wonder how many of you felt the same way or feel the same way. Both my parents are gone and I miss them terribly. I look back on my total impatience with them and how little I understood. I thought this was just some food for thought. Anyway, this episode is one you asked for it. That means a listener requested it. I was giving a presentation on a podcast and afterwards an audience member came forward asking me if we'd investigate doing an episode on divorce. Never thought of it before. When our adult child gets divorced, it clicked with me and I thought that must be very tough when you've welcomed someone to the family and then suddenly you have to navigate them leaving. The first part of the episode is not completely on divorce, but it's about narcissism. Because when I started investigating people to talk about divorce, many of them have specialty on recognizing narcissism. It might be that causes the divorce. Maybe your adult child has a bit of narcissism and you don't recognize it, or even their significant other or spouse. And narcissism, as all of us know, is rampant these days. At least we think so, because with social media, everyone taking pictures of themselves, flaunting all they've got, is that narcissism? How do we recognize it? And of course, is it treatable? Then we get to the real divorce issues. So right now, we're welcoming Alina Shayano. She's a licensed psychotherapist and an expert in narcissistic abuse. She has a new book coming out called Swimming with Sharks, Surviving Narcissistic Infested Waters. It's a guide for understanding the impact of narcissism abuse in your life. It might be in our life, but we're right now looking at it in our adult children's lives. 
How do we help our adult children or their significant others or partners recognize it? And it also is a big trigger for divorce. So welcome, Alina. Thank you so much, Denise. I'm so glad to be here. Great. You know, this whole narcissism thing just sort of astounds me. I've always heard of narcissism, but I never quite understood it. So can you tell us first how you became so interested in narcissistic abuse, or as you refer to it on your website, NAB? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So how I like to describe it is I basically had breadcrumbs dropped in front of me throughout grad school. Um, Then when I started my career, I had patients here and there come to come to me and I noticed patterns where their partner was probably narcissistic, then it kind of just became such a pattern of having these patients come in that I realized, okay, well, I guess this is supposed to be my one of my specialties. Eventually, I realized I enjoyed working with them so much that I just dropped my other specialties and focused solely on narcissistic abuse. So how long have you been focusing mostly on NAB? It's been one of my specialties since I think at least 2016. It's been my primary specialty, I'd say, for the past three or four years. Let's start with what exactly is a narcissist. And what's the difference between someone with narcissistic traits and a true narcissist? And I'm just going to say, I thought about this last night when I was thinking about this interview. When I look at Instagram, TikTok, all this social media, and I see these 20-something, 30-somethings all taking pictures of themselves, even flexing their muscles, showing themselves in their bikinis, it seems very narcissistic. Is it? Not necessarily, no. You know, that fits with the classic narcissist story where, you know, he was staring at his reflection in the pool of water. That's not really, really an example. I don't know that you can even say that staring at yourself in the mirror is narcissistic. For some reason, that's become a societal definition. But, you know, you said true narcissist. I don't even know that you can call someone a true narcissist. So and what I'm thinking you're probably referring to is what people typically call narcissistic personality disorder, which is... Right, exactly. It's a clinical diagnosis, you know, that we use in the mental health field. Um, but Personally, I don't, I don't use that term anymore because it's a diagnosis. We technically are supposed to be in person with someone and go through an entire assessment process where we are able to diagnose them based on our interactions with that person. But in my work, I don't work with the narcissist. I work with the survivor victims of the narcissist. But still, you have to recognize that the, per- the survivor's spouse or partner is a narcissist. So how do you figure that out? What traits do you look for? Yeah. So I, you know, I, I don't use the term NPD anymore as, okay. you know, as a diagnosis. I'm more so um, giving a label that describes a pattern of their narcissistic traits, their behaviors, also relationship dynamics is a really important piece of it. So, so some examples of narcissistic traits could be they're antagonistic, they're argumentative, dysregulated. Um, they may have, they may be empathy deficient. I like to use uh, empathy deficient as the term because typically narcissists, a lot of times people say they lack empathy, but usually there is not a one hundred percent lack of empathy. There is some, there is some empathy, and then there are certain levels of empathy and how it's expressed in different ways, probably too much to get into right now. But to go back to what you said before, 
I use the term pathological narcissist, so you'll hear me using that term. Okay. Um, so the pathological narcissist may be highly reactive. So you say something and they become extremely defensive in response. Um, another common trait is that they're manipulative. Some examples of behaviors, they will be very coercively controlling. A common one that people think of is that they um, use charm as, you know, that's a common behavior that you'll see that they're charming. They will regularly devalue what you say, devalue you as a person and validate you. They will fly off into, you know, fits of narcissist rage. What's narcissist rage? Yeah, narcissist rage is is a rage reaction. Um, but I call it narcissist rage because, well, it's coming from the narcissist and and it's it's what's behind it and why they're raging. So it's a defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. And it's because they they're so insecure that they aren't able to handle hearing something like constructive feedback or criticism. And so then they can't regulate their own emotions and they become enraged. And and this is separate from narcissism, but what happens in us as human beings is when we become enraged, uh, you know, it, the part of our brain that reasons stops, almost stops working. And the more primitive, instinctual part of our brain takes over. And um, so that's, so that's kind of what's happening with them. This is really interesting to me because I think everyone I would talk to would never think of narcissism traits or recognizing narcissism in a spouse or a significant other as those kind of traits. And you actually use the word I'm going to use, I think, or something like it. It feels more like sort of insecurity. Mm-hmm. You know, when someone's always arguing with you or their way's always right, or they put you down, you always think, gosh, they don't feel so good about themselves. And yet when we think about a narcissist, we think they think they're all that. Yeah. And it's actually quite the opposite. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. That's that's a lot of what I talk about um, in my book. Insecurity, lack of self-esteem, poor self-worth, those are the the foundational pieces of being a narcissist. And, and narcissism in itself is really a defense mechanism. So someone becomes a narcissist to protect themselves from looking within and seeing who they are because there's so much fear that they'll see someone who isn't good enough and who isn't worthy. Wow. And then the charm plays into that too. They use that charm to cover up the inefficiencies that they feel. Is that right? Yeah, it can be. I mean, sometimes people are just naturally charming. It's not always something that's used purposefully. And and honestly, t- usually what, what I see is that most of the behaviors that we see in narcissists, they aren't used purposefully. They're subconsciously driven. They don't mm-hmm. realize that what they're doing is hurtful. They don't, they're not doing it to hurt someone. They're not doing it to manipulate. They don't even realize that they're being manipulative most of the time. They are simply trying to, I'd say, get their way, get what they want, you know, avoid looking at themselves, feel better about themselves. There's so much out there that really demonizes the narcissist. And I mean, don't get me wrong, they can be awful. They do mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so much harm. And I, you know, I see it and I work with it all the time and it breaks my heart what I see. But I think we can look at that and at the same time, see that the narcissist is not this 
evil person, they are fragile and they're afraid of seeing themselves as broken. So as parents of adult children, what kinds of things can we look for in relationships that our adult children are having? Could our adult child have exhibits of narcissism? Are there red flags you think we should pay attention to when we see our kids in relationships that maybe are heading towards divorce? Yeah, absolutely. So as a parent of an adult child, you may notice you know, who could be a narcissist themselves or could be um, married to a narcissist, potentially divorcing a narcissist. You may notice a pattern of behaviors that result from your adult child's shame over their relationship. So this is more so if they're married to a narcissist. Well, or even dating, long-term dating, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And anyone who has a partner who is a narcissist. Right, Okay. And say, usually that's the term I'll use. I'm saying married since we were talking about divorce. Okay. So there's a pattern of behaviors that occurs as a reaction of their own shame from what their relationship is, oftentimes from how they're being treated in their relationship, or they may also have a fear of your reaction. And so some of the patterns that you could look for are that they're hiding the truth of what's going on in their relationship. So if you start hearing some inconsistencies, or you're seeing inconsistencies and they're telling you, you know, making excuses, things like that. They will often isolate themselves, maybe from you or their friends, high levels of anxiety, depressive patterns, anger. They may act like they aren't good enough. You may even see that they've taken on some narcissistic behaviors themselves because that's a common thing when, when people are in a relationship with a narcissist for a long period of time, they'll, they'll often take on those behaviors without even realizing it. Interesting. Yeah. Now they're in this relationship. They might be married. It might be a long-term, you know, I consider divorce, even if your son or daughter's dating someone for a really long time and then, and then it splits up, that's hard for both sides of the families too. Absolutely. Why do they fall in love with a narcissist? What makes our narcissists easy to fall in love with? Do you not notice these traits before you marry or commit to a long-term relationship? I'd say a lot of times people do, but they ignore them. I think that there are a couple of reasons why people fall in love with a narcissist. One being that at the beginning of the relationship, they caught a glimpse of a fantasy. A, I talk about in my book of a like a prince charming mm -hmm. or princess charming. When things change and shift, which they can do pretty quickly or it can take a while before they shift, even if they are noticing unhealthy patterns, even if they're being hurt, even if they're being abused, what I've seen time after time is that they stick around waiting for their ha happily ever after, but it never comes. And I guess that's true a little bit with accepting someone because you know some people just want to get married. Yes, they do. They want a family. They have dreams that they want to be realized. And oftentimes people are willing to accept less than what they realize they deserve. Again, even if they're being abused, you know, and, and I'm talking about narcissistic abuse. So it's a psychological abuse. Right. Even if they're enduring that, they're still hoping that the next day will be better. Second reason why people fall in love with narcissists and stay with narcissists is because the narcissist subconsciously reminds them of a parent who was narcissistic and oh. hurt them throughout childhood. And so what they're doing without realizing it is trying to heal old wounds with a new person, but it never ends up working. Interesting. Yeah. When I started preparing for this interview, 
I looked on the web naturally about divorce and narcissists. Mm -hmm. If we have a child involved in a relationship with a narcissist, and we might even see that through their relationship with us, I would imagine, how do we help them? You know, we're at an arm's length. We don't have that much involvement, but we see what's going on. We want to encourage them, I guess, for divorce, or they're coming to us saying they're getting a divorce. And it's hard to divorce a narcissist from what I read. Is that right? Oh, gosh, it's awful. Let's talk about that. The first part of your question, you know, how can you be there for them? First of all, actively listen to them, be empathic, be unconditionally accepting, and be supportive of what they need. If they do start talking about divorce, don't try to stop them. If they're not ready for divorce, don't try to get them to do it. That is one of the things that I see that complicates the lives of survivor victims of narcissists the most is when their family tries to step in. And it's it often feels like just one more person in their life who is trying to control them. And they're already dealing with that mm-hmm. at home with their partner. You know, another way to support them that I would love to see more in parents is offering to take care of the kids offering financial support. That's Mm -hmm. a huge one because a lot of partners of pathological narcissists were manipulated to give up their jobs, to stay home with the kids, and they no longer have a means of supporting themselves. And getting back into the working world is very difficult. So a lot of times the reason why they stay in the relationship is because they are too scared financially to, to leave it. So Offering financial support, if you're able to, is a wonderful way to help them. But I'd say most importantly, just keep telling them that you love them no matter what. Mm -hmm. Because they're feeling unloved at home. You know, they're feeling like the love that they're receiving at home is conditional on them behaving a certain way. And so that's really what what they need to be reminded of is no matter what they choose to do, no matter how they choose to move forward, that you're there, you accept them, and you love them no matter what. And you mentioned the grandchildren, so I'm going to ask this question. How does having a narcissistic parent affect our grandchildren? And again, how can we help other than, you know, I think your suggestion to take the kids, give them a break, let them focus on their life and what's going on. What else should we look for in our grandchildren or how can we help? So the effect on the grandchildren really depends on the severity of narcissistic behaviors that are displayed by the pathological narcissist. There are so many different dynamics that occur within a family where one of the parents is is a narcissist. It's hard to give a a blanket statement, but uh, sometimes the parent takes more out on the children and sometimes they don't. Mm -hmm. That's certainly a, a factor to keep in mind. But the impact on the children is probably the most heartbreaking part of the work that I do. And the part I wish I had, I always wish I had more control over because the survivor victim ends up having little to no control over how the other parent treats their, their child or children, um, especially once Uh, separation is initiated and they are having to share custody. Right, right. As a side note, it's very difficult to use narcissistic behaviors as a reason to limit custody. The court isn't good at recognizing that. I know there's no blanket statement, but as we're taking care of our grandchildren or they're visiting or whatever, or we're with them at holidays and we see them with their parents, 
I know, again, I know there's no blanket statement, but any little things the kid might talk about or you might see, or might the kid be less secure or shy or afraid to say things because possibly they're being beaten down a lot? I mean, are there any little things like that that we might look for? Yeah, all of the above, you know. Okay. They could also come across as extremely confident and not be underneath. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it is tough to say. I hear I'm trying to think of patterns that I've I've heard from my patients um, when they talk about their kids. Is there any indication of how they're doing in school or anything like that? Or it could be they're not doing great or they're doing really great. Right. Yeah. Both. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. There is no one red flag. I mean, they could each be well, not doing great could be a red flag, but that may not be because of what's happening at home. Mm-hmm. But maybe if they're doing great, I mean, they always say, and you know, when your kid's doing really great and then suddenly there's this complete fall off um, when there's a severe change, mm-hmm. might that be something to look at? It might not absolutely be narcissism from a parent, but something to think about. Yes. No, I mean, no matter what is happening, no matter what the parents are like or what is going on in a, a you know, what you think is going on in a child's life, if there is ever a dramatic drop in school performance or social interest outside of school, yes, always, mm-hmm. always look deeper into that and gently explore that. Is it ever pos- possible for a narcissist to have a good long relationship? Well, um, you qualified that by saying good. <laughs> <laughs> um they most certainly have lasting relationships, but never healthy relationships. It's interesting. They're not capable of being healthy within themselves. So therefore, they're not capable of interacting with their partners in a healthy way. I know that you treat the survivor, but is there ever treatment for a narcissist? There are other mental health professionals out there who treat narcissists. There's research out there. You know, give anything a try. Of well, I guess I would say if you're counseling someone and you you know that they're suffering from this, do you ever encourage them to see if their spouse might get help? No. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, not not for the narcissism. Once in a while, if there's there is something else going on, like depression, anxiety, then we might be able to use that as a means to get them into counseling and hopefully address some behaviors through therapy. Mm-hmm. One thing I would say is never tell the narcissist that they're a narcissist. You know, ne- never use that term. It doesn't do any good. They'll just throw it back at you. They'll go- they'll go Google it, and then they're going to remember various traits and behaviors, and then they'll start saying that you are like that or you yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, but ther- therapy usually a narcissist won't go to therapy because they won't acknowledge that anything is wrong with them. I also read that narcissism could be half biological and half environmental. Do you agree with this? Will a narcissistic parent sometime breed a narcissistic child? Okay, so to answer your first question, okay. there's no definitive research as to what exactly causes someone to be a pathological narcissist. But, you know, there's some research out there that you can go and look at, but there can be a biological component to where someone is born a certain way or born with certain person, you know, natural personality characteristics that make it easier for them to become a narcissist and more likely to become a narcissist. Um, some, some people are 
naturally highly empathic and highly sensitive to people. And some people are naturally less empathic and less sensitive. And those people who are less empathic, less sensitive, it's easier for them to slip over the edge into, you know, pathological narcissism. Uh, but it's very much so environmental. So should the parent of the that might be being abused by a pathological narcissist pay attention to their kid's behavior, hoping they don't go over the edge or help them become more empathetic or display behaviors that would be more positive for the child to see? Yes, absolutely. That's one of the things that I work with my patients on. It's one of the things that I address in my book is because it's, I, it's a question I often get, you know, do I have to worry do I need to worry about my kid becoming a narcissist because mm -hmm. their parent is? And I mean, I advocate for not worrying ever about anything because worry never does any good. <laughs> Tell that to all of our listeners. <laughs> oh, we can have a whole other podcast. <laughs> but what, what, yes, watch out for certain behaviors. Watch out if, you know, if they start cropping up as you would with any child you're raising and then gently teach them when they're, choosing to behave in a way that's unkind or unhealthy and positively reinforce the positive behaviors, of course. The one thing that I say, if there's one thing that a parent could do for their child to help them avoid becoming a narcissist is to do their best to develop a strong sense of empathy within the child. That's really big in schools right now. Empathy almost yes. more important than intelligent things. So I guess the schools are getting that. Yeah, I'm seeing it trickle in. I hope that it grows, you know, it because it is vital. And it's the characteristic that's going to make the world a better place. Absolutely. But it's also the one that prevents people from hurting other people. Right. If you can empathize with someone, you're far less likely to hurt them. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit of IQ and EQ too. Yes. Okay, so let's get back to divorce and how divorcing a narcissist can impose such certain problems. Let's leave our listeners with two or three things to think about and act on if they suspect narcissism in their adult child's relationship or even in the divorce as it goes forward. I'd say the first one, you've already heard me say, be unconditionally accepting and supportive. Don't make the divorce about you. It's easy to take that on as Oh, I, f I failed as a parent. And so, and that's why my child relationship is failing. So do your best not to do that. And if you are doing that, definitely don't do that to your adult child. Go talk to someone else, you know, a friend or preferably a counselor about that. Again, don't take it on as your fault and don't take it on as your responsibility to fix. Your adult child is already dealing with enough and they do not want to have to deal with you trying to parent them on top of everything that they're dealing with in their relationship. And that, that just makes it more complicated. You know, adult children just, they don't want to be, they don't want their parents to fix things for them. They just want their parents to be there for them. And love them. Yes. You know, it just makes me think about, I think those are all great and we're going to wrap up now, but when you say don't blame yourself, you know, I also know a lot of parents who just want to see their kids married yeah. and say things like, don't let him get away or whatever. And yes. you get married, even though your parents not recognizing the situation, they just want to see the kid married. Oh, he's making a lot of money or she's making a lot of money, blah, 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 marry her. And gosh, harboring that guilt would be really hard if you were the one behind the scenes saying, marry this person. Yes. Yeah. Alina, I really appreciated this. I think this is such a fascinating topic and something that most of us really don't completely understand. 
and I don't think through this podcast we'll get it completely, but reading more about it, understanding more, and even you know purchasing your book when it comes out would be a great resource for all of us. So I really appreciate your time and thank you so much. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And you know, if anyone wants more resources right now, um, you can go to narcissistic-abuse.org and that will forward you to my website. Okay, that's great. And I'll put that in the episode notes and everything as well. Yes, thank you so much, Denise. Okay, thank you so much. Have a great day. So let's get on to part two of this episode on divorce and our adult children. You asked for it. A few listeners wrote to us recently about their adult children getting divorced, how to handle it, what's their role, the disappointment, their children's heartache. I can't even imagine what this feels like. So we did a lot of research to try to find someone who could address this topic with us. And we're really pleased today to welcome Ashley Kwame. Ashley is a marriage and family therapist based in the Augusta, Georgia area. I also sort of really like that she was in Georgia. We've had so many, you know, experts and therapists from the coast, and I like the idea that we've got someone from the South. Her focus is therapy for couples and families, and we'll provide you with her website link and all of that sort of stuff in the episode notes. I was very impressed when I spoke with her recently, and I read on her website that she specializes in something called emotionally focused therapy, EFT, an approach developed by Dr. Sue Johnson. From what I understand, and she can tell us more, EFT prioritizes emotions and emotion regulation. And Lord knows, as a parent of an adult child, always looking for emotional regulation. So welcome, Ashley. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks, Denise, for having me. It's good to be here. So let's get started. As parents of adult children, we are always trying to bite our tongues. But now something's gone wrong. They're going for it through a divorce. Their first call is mom. This is what's happening. What's our first reaction when we get that call? Yeah, that's a tough one, right? Because for those parents, um, maybe they've had an inclination that this is coming. So maybe they're not surprised, right? Um, Maybe it is a total shock and they're blindsided. Whatever it is, as far as how they feel, their first reaction, though, is important. And while repair is possible, it can be pretty difficult uh, and an extra hurdle to go through during this time. So I encourage parents to keep things short and sweet. Um, I think that sometimes as parents, I'm guilty myself, although my children are younger, we talk too much. (laughs) But keeping our responses in these situations really short and sweet, validating whatever it is that, you know, they may observe that their child might feel. So something along the lines of, you know, sweetie, I'm so sorry to hear that. That sounds really tough. Oh my goodness. Thank you for telling me, right? Um, I encourage parents, no matter where their children are developmentally, like thank them for being vulnerable and sharing that information with you because it's a choice. They don't have to do that. And it just continues to foster that alliance and that connection especially during a divorce process, uh, you know, the further down the road that they get. I think what you said is really important. We all tend to talk too much. You know, what happened? Why did this happen? What did you do? And how do you encourage them to speak to you more about that? Because it's really hard to hang up the phone, not get the details. I mean, you can't really say, how long has this been going on? Gee, I had no inclination. Um, How are the kids doing? Are there any questions you can ask? 
I think so, but I do think timing is key here. And and for parents in this situation, this might sound harsh, but remembering it's not about you in this moment. It's not about you. It's not about what information makes you feel better. It's about your child. And so I think it's completely appropriate to say something along the lines of, oh my gosh, I'm so surprised. I would love to know at some point what happened or why this is happening. But right now, I just want to make sure that you are okay. How can I be there to support you? What is it that you need from me right now in this moment? Kind of putting a pin in it, tabling it is the most appropriate way to approach it in that moment. And then it really gives the adult child the autonomy to be able to choose when they are emotionally ready to talk more about it. Most of the time when adults are going through a divorce, they're just trying to survive, especially if they have children. They're just trying to get through and survive the moment. And they need a team, a support team behind them. They don't need to be answering questions to everyone that they tell. So for parents in this situation, be a part of their team, be one that supports them. But tabling those questions for later, I think is um, the most appropriate response immediately. I I love what you said. And it is important for us to know it's not about us. All right. But you know, you're a parent of young children and you know, when your child hurts, you hurt almost doubly. Oh, yeah. Okay. Right. So because you're, you have no control and you have more control when they're young. So you can find out more what's going on when Sally hurts Susie in kindergarten, but as adults, you don't have control. So how does a parent, this sort of is really more about us as the parent, how do they control that feeling of hurt and anxiety that they feel when their child is hurting? What do we need to tell ourselves? What do we have to do to to manage that within ourselves? Yeah, it's, you know, I, I say this to my clients all the time, but I do a really great job of saying things as if it's so easy to do. Mm-hmm. And I recognize that it is not an easy thing to always practice. So just because I say things as if they are easy and hopefully not flippant, but um, I get it. It's hard. So saying to your adult child, right? I want to know what happens. Let's put a, I can put a pin on it, but I would love to know what happens. That is so hard, Denise. Like, of course, you know, you're going to be filled with anxiety and worry. I think the best thing that adult parents can do in those moments is you know, if they are married themselves, turn to their spouse, lean on each other, right? In those moments. Um, If you have a close friend group, lean on them. Um, They can be your support. If you need to seek out therapy, this is a great time to seek out therapy because you're affected by this too. And in that way, a therapist can really guide you, right? And through your own grief, but also in ensuring that you are maintaining appropriate boundaries and being able to be supportive in the way that you need to be. So it's okay to feel whatever it is that you are feeling. You can validate that for yourself, right? This is hard. I don't like this. I don't feel in control. It's uncomfortable. It's scary. But lean on those other uh, other people who are maybe outside of the family mm-hmm. and not immediately impacted by the divorce. Those are really good suggestions. 
the other thing is, is I don't think, and maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I work on this myself. I don't want to show my anxiety to my adult child because I think that gives them the feeling that I don't have confidence that they're going to get through this. And I want them to feel confident that whatever it is, they're going to get through it. But when they have an emotionally disabled mother, which I am, I'm putting it right out there. um, (laughs) They may not feel that same strength that they need to get through it. Yeah. I think that adult children too, and and it's not it's true for adult children, younger children, when they go through divorce, they often feel that they have to take care of their parent and their emotional response. And, right. you know, from an attachment lens, like that doesn't stop just because we turn 18 and we fly the coop, right? Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> that, that feeling of, I don't want to hurt my parent. Um, I don't want my mom to worry. I don't want my parent to worry. You know, we carry that with us no matter how old we are more or less, right? Right. No. And yet you want your children to share that with you. You should be their sounding board. So how do we deal with that? Absolutely. And that's where, you know, Denise, I think it's important to remember to lean on your support systems during this time, your spouse being one of them. I would be leery to lean on your other adult children who maybe aren't involved. They need to have their reactions too, depending upon the dynamic there. And you know, as a parent, you need to be there for them too. So leaning on folks that are outside of the immediate family system and your spouse, going to see a therapist or clergy member, if that's Mm -hmm. um, something that is important to you, but doing those things to take care of yourself so that your adult child who is going through the divorce does not feel like you are one more person that they have to take care of. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It's funny because I walked with a friend this morning. We were sort of talking about that, but she and I both have similar husbands where we carry the burden of anxiety. There, everything's going to be okay. So we sort of lean on each other. Sometimes the spouse isn't the person. You're right. You know, so many different scenarios. One, you can't stand them. So you're glad it's happened, but they have these kids. Yeah. Two, this fella or daughter-in-law was like a true member of your family. Sometimes you're like, you're the best thing that's happened to our family. Yeah. So how do you deal with these scenarios? Yeah, I think that depending upon your feelings for the other partner, one makes a big difference. Again, I go back to whatever it is that you feel it's okay. Sometimes people feel like they place judgment on how they quote unquote should feel, right? Whatever it is that you feel it's okay. What comes out of your mouth though is a different story. Um, <laughs> which is why we call the podcast "Bite Your Tongue." <laughs> yes, I love that. I I love that. Yes, um, tell my kids all the time: you don't get in trouble for what you feel; you get in trouble for what you do. Right, um, right. So, whatever it is that you feel, know that it's okay. And I can't reiterate that enough because I find that sometimes um, clients uh, they feel a lot of guilt and shame around whatever it is that they do feel. Uh, and so being able to self-validate is, is a very important part of healing and navigating any experience. If this person was a member of your family, you know, there's going to be some grief, you know, there too. Um, and that can be, I find the most difficult part. Do we let our adult child be the leader, whether we continue a relationship with that spouse or how does that change? I think that that is an evolving process. I have had the pleasure of working with families through divorce and couples across the gamut. So ones that there are some very unhealthy, toxic dynamics, get into some severe mental health, personality disorder, you know, types. Uh, and then there are some that 
I mean, it's amazing. And you kind of question, how are you able to continue to function in a beautiful, like healthy way? Like it just seems, you know, impossible. So I think that it's an evolving process as far as what relationship you have with the ex-in-law. If it's a situation where that person, you had a good relationship prior to, I think for the short term, it's important to have a conversation with your child right? And saying, where are you right now with how involved do you want me to be with your soon to be ex? It might be for the short term. And what I would encourage parents in this space to be is to really step back, let your adult child uh, figure out how things are going to work. If you are a grandparent who is very involved with grandchildren, picking up, watching, caretaking, still do that. The children need to have consistency um, and stability through that time. Your relationship with that other, the in-law should be one of a business-like relationship. Mm -hmm. Transactional, right? It should be business-like. We're not talking about details, asking them how they feel. Uh, um, And that might be hard, but it needs to be very business-like if you are exchanging children or, you know, at pickup, drop-off and you're seeing each other. And what if the grandchildren are a little bit older? Are you able to talk to them about it? You don't want to have the elephant in the room all the time. So you've got a 12-year-old grandchild that you take to music lessons every Thursday or something. They're feeling something. I would hate not to say anything, but again, guidance from the adult child first. I would say so. I think that, and I've had where grandparents, you know, they're middle school Mm-hmm. Um, or younger, what any age of the child, and they just verbally vomit. <laughs> like, I don't like this. I can't stand this, right? It's not fair. I hate my mommy and daddy right now. Right, right. So you can't <laughs> prevent like verbal vomit, right, from happening <laughs> if, if, in, if it comes. Um, if it does, then yes, you need to share that with your adult child. Hey, you know, Susie shared with me some hard feelings that they're having. I'm just letting you know, I encourage them that they should talk to whoever their safe person is, that they should talk to you. They should talk to dad. If as a grandparent, and this is a really fine line to kind of walk, but if from your observation, the child is having a very difficult time, it might be important to mention to your adult child and possibly suggest, Hey, I think that they need more support than what we can give. So outside therapy. Yeah. Correct. Have you and dad, right? Have you guys thought about that? This is what I'm observing. Very delicate line to walk because you're criticizing the parent a little bit. Well, it could come across that way, right? But if you are an involved grandparent and, you know, I will say that my mother-in-law is, she lives within walking distance from our house, which is fabulous. And hopefully this doesn't ever come into play, but she keeps my kids. She's involved, right? She would have observations, right? Of them. And as grandparents, I know that you know, especially ones who are very involved, they do. And those observations, I think that your adult child needs to know, hey, I'm observing, you know, this behavior. I don't know what it means, right? But I'm just letting you know that this is what I'm observing. This is for you to choose how you want to handle this. I think you have to be very careful in that. And it really depends on the personality of both the parents and the in-law. You know, we did a podcast on grandparenting 
And I sort of asked her, what if the kids are acting up at your house? She says, the parents know what's going on, zip it. Unless, of course, you think it's dangerous or whatever. So I think in the situation, if it's a divorce and your child is, you can say something, but you got to be careful. I think as a parent, if my in-law or my mother would have done that all the time, I would have started feeling like, are you criticizing my parenting? It's a fine line. It is a fine line and it depends on the relationship. It also depends on where you are in the divorce process. Right. Very early on, children are experiencing regression, likely, right. or likely, or a delayed reaction. Um, I've worked with numerous children who have delayed reactions to divorce. It's not until, you know, a year later. Interesting. Decides to remarry. So it's not always an immediate reaction. Sometimes parents are like, oh, they're handling it fine. Right. Nine months later, they're like, I don't know why all of a sudden they're having such a difficult time. Right. It depends too on where you are in the divorce process. How far is it not just from the the first time that the D word is mentioned, right? But when when the parent, one of the parents moves out or when they physically, the home separates, then when the divorce becomes finalized, because oftentimes there's a temporary order that's put in place, right? Too. So it can be a very drawn out process. And so where you are, I think also matters and is important for uh, parents of adult children to be mindful of, right? What if it's your child that's caused the divorce, had an affair, you know, was uh, horrible, you know, did some gambled away a hundred thousand, whatever it might be. Now you have to deal with not only this sadness of divorce, but this situation that your child has, I don't want to say caused. I I don't know. I'm not saying this all right. How do you deal with this? You you don't want to be critical. You want to be helpful. Do you want to be supportive to the spouse they're leaving? The spouse they're leaving is probably so angry. There's a lot of anger that's coming up now, particularly if it was an affair. Yeah. So what do you do? Yeah. I think when we're looking at mental health issues, you know, you mentioned addiction. Mm -hmm. So when there are mental, severe mental health issues like addiction, and it is likely the reason for the divorce. You know, that's, that's tricky because your child obviously needs some mental health help. Given that they are adults, you have no control over whether they seek it out. So that is tough. As far as the relationship with the other spouse, again, that's very tricky and likely, you know, I answer it in a way of not answering it and saying that depends. Um, what the relationship was like, whether there are children, how old are the children? Keeping a business-like relationship, though, is something that I encourage, um, at least initially, and in seeing how things you know evolve. If it was an affair, that's a hard one. That can be a hard one, you know, especially if you really liked and regarded, you know, the other one as as kind of your own. You want to say to your kid, you know, what was that about? Yes. Grass may look greener for a month, but it's not going to be greener for the next 10 years. You're going to have the same issues. Yeah. I think communicating to your child that, hey, I'm hurt by what you did. Oh, okay. Your actions didn't just hurt this other person um, and maybe your children, but you know, it hurts us too. There's impact, you know, there. And I think even encouraging them saying, hey, I hope that you can figure out what led you to having an extramarital affair. I hope that you can figure that out so that you don't repeat this pattern moving forward. But, you know, when it comes to affairs, um, it's okay to be mad at your child. You know, there's room for, for both emotions, right? You can be mad and angry and sad and grieving and hurt. And it's okay to hold both of them just in the same way that if you didn't like the other uh, partner, you can be, you know, relieved and you can be sad for your child that they are hurting. So 
holding both and, right? Is it ever appropriate? I mean, this is how I would probably approach it. And I'm sure I'm, I'm wrong. And again, you have a good relationship with both of them. You're involved with the grandchildren. Just to sit down, maybe you and your spouse, and acknowledge what happened, whether it was your daughter or the, or the other person or whatever, and ask them, is this enough to end your marriage? Would the two of you consider counseling to try to move forward past this? It's probably none of my business, but before you cut the cord, maybe do a little bit of counseling. Now, the spouse could say, absolutely not. She really, you know, da-da-da-da. Is it ever appropriate to say that? I think that to your child, it is. Not to both of them. You know, I will say, I don't know. Maybe it is. It depends on the relationship. I think it would take a pretty special relationship, though, a pretty unique one in that that situation. Well, look at your situation, your mother-in-law. It sounds like you're very close to her. I am very close. Would you want... I wouldn't, uh, you know, if it were my mother-in-law, I would say that I probably wouldn't have an issue with it. Okay, right. However, I'm also a therapist and can understand people's intentions. Yeah. And so <laughs> I don't know if, um, yeah, I don't, I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Part of me might also be kind of frustrated. And let's be honest, as much as I love her and, you know, I've known her really since I was 19 years old, going on close to 20 years now. At the end of the day, that's still my husband's mom. And so there would be a part of me, depending upon, you know, and this is hypothetical, my husband's probably, God, why would you go on and talk about that? Like, if, <laughs> uh, like you know, if I were the one to have the transgression, right? Right, like, right. I would want my mother. Yeah, out. that's true. You know, you're right. I just think there's to be considered there, but I think your, your child, yes, I think it's okay to say, how are you figuring this out? What are you doing to figure this out? Right. 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 And again, less is more. Keep it simple. Right. Maybe it's like, well, we're just going to get divorced. Oh, okay. Well, that's not what I thought that you guys would do. I respect your choice. Uh, you know, I'm here to support you. It sounds to me like from this conversation, I've sort of gathered is that our job, although we're part of their support group, okay, and we're feeling all these emotions, anger, powerlessness, helplessness, sometimes disappointment, embarrassment, all these different things, because you celebrated this wedding so much with all these people, and now it's ending for this marriage, we need to take care of ourselves. Yes. Because in order to be helpful to them, we need to be stronger. Absolutely. I think if we were to funnel things down into like a main point, then yes, you have to take care of yourself from an emotion regulation standpoint. You have to. Um, if you want to be the kind of parent that your child needs in going through a divorce, you have to prioritize how you feel and take care of you. Mm-hmm. And keep your mouth shut. Most of the time. (laughs) Most of the time, keep your mouth shut. Bite your tongue. Bite your tongue, right. You said keep your emotions regulated. Would this EFT, emotionally focused therapy, help at all? How does that help regulate your emotions? Can you tell us a tiny bit about that? So I practice it with couples, although there is a model for family and for individuals now that um, is starting to emerge and have research on. I use it with couples. You know, it comes from an attachment place. So, you know, helping individuals understand really their own attachment styles um, in terms of how they think, feel, and then do in relationships. And so using emotion in that way, 
as kind of an agent of change using not just those secondary emotions like anger, um, sadness, frustration, but really those more primary gut level. I know you can't see my hands right now. I'm like, <laughs> my gut, right? Those like gut level emotions like shame, fear, uh, worry. But that's why I, I sort of feel like that could work with an adult mother and a child. Right. There's a lot of gut emotions that are involved there. There are. And then it's, you know, EFT is helping clients understand how that plays out though in the relationship between the two. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. When I feel scared, I, these racing thoughts, and it comes out as anger and criticism, but really what's behind, what's behind the criticism, what's behind the anger uh, is a lot of fear. Got it. And so EFT uses emotion in that way to help the other partner, the other person understand and make sense of what's behind the action tendency. Uh, and then helping that unit restructure the way that they do conversation, essentially um, conflict, right? Right. No, that makes perfect sense. And it, it's a beautiful model for, for families too. Um, I would say that it would be appropriate only if there is a contentious relationship between adult parents and, and children. All right. I didn't mean to digress, but I just sort of found that interesting. Wanted to know a little bit more about it. So before we end, I always like to ask our guests to leave our listeners with two or three points they want them to take away from this podcast. What would you say are the two or three key things our listeners should remember if their children, adult children, are facing a divorce? Yeah. So as we've kind of already talked about, keeping in mind that it's not about you. While you are important and you matter in the situation, it is not about you. And the other one would be, as we said, take care of yourself. Yeah. Focus on you. If you are having a hard time emotionally, go and take care of that with outside support and resources. And then, you know, really the last keep things simple verbally when you're talking keep the conversation simple and keep it focused on what your child needs, right? Asking even, do you want feedback from me? What do you need from me, right? Keeping it child focused uh, will be helpful. That's the hardest thing in the world. Let's just say, Ashley, I really appreciated your time today. Absolutely. We got to some quick points really well. Yep. Thank you. And I will definitely in the episode notes, link your website and also some information on the EFT. If there's anything else you have you'd like me to share, please send it my way. Okay. I will do that, Denise. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks so much to both Ashley and Alina. I know this is a long episode but I'm hoping you're able to listen to it in two parts. You know, we all get so excited when the weddings occur, but then we're not sure what to do if our adult child is facing a divorce. And we felt it was so important to discuss some of the key reasons for divorce, including narcissism and understanding what it really means. I certainly didn't understand it the way Alina described it. In any event, it just seems like everyone keeps telling us a couple of things. Keep our distance, offer support when needed, and take care of ourselves. I loved when Alina said, worry does nothing. It made me laugh and I thought, okay, so then why do we worry so much all the time? Anyway, thanks so much to all of you for listening. Please remember to support us on social media. Also continue to send us your ideas you'd like us to explore. Just write to us at biteyourtonguepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again to Connie Gorn Fisher, our audio engineer. 
She continues to amaze me with her talent that makes us sound so good. Happy 2023 to all of you. Stay safe. Enjoy your adult kids. But remember, sometimes you may just have to bite your tongue.